back when I was in the 10th grade. This was 1994. Anybody in high school in 1994? Back in the day when we suffered without cell phones. Um, I was on a baseball team and struggling. I was in a slump, couldn't hit. Uh, we were playing Stowe Rocks one day, and the guy that was on the mound was a really well-known guy, a really good pitcher. I got up to the plate, and I thought, I got to hit this kid. I'm not doing well, but I got to get a hit. So I get up there, strike one, strike two. I got one more strike. I'm like, come on, I, I can do this. Next pitch, it's low. It's, it's almost right in the dirt. And I'm like, all right, I'm good. And then all of a sudden, I hear, strike three. And I turned around, and I yelled at the umpire. And he kicked me out of the game. He's like, you're out of here. And I went back to the dugout, and I yelled at the umpire again. And he said, if you don't be quiet, I'm going to kick you out of, the, out of the field, out of the whole area. And I went back and sat down at the end of the bench in a heap of self-pity and anger. And that is one of the most memorable at-bats of my entire life. Now, as a preacher, it's, it's safe to tell you stories about my life that happened 30 years ago. <laughs> but the truth is, I struggle with self-control every single day. And uh, I love when the Apostle Paul wrote something that brings me a little bit of comfort. He said, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate I do, because there's times where I'm like, don't say it, don't say it, and then I say it, or don't think that, don't think that, don't go there, and I just, I just do it, and I have this, this battle with self-control. And so the, the question that we're going to deal with today is, how do I conquer my evil desires? This is the issue that the Apostle Paul deals with in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, and I'll, I'll give away the very ending of this section of Scripture. Paul says this, they, speaking of a bunch of people who are giving a solution to this question, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. One translation says they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. And so we're going to look at the things that are not helpful when it comes to conquering our evil desires, and Paul's going to describe one big thing that we can press into, that will, in fact, give us victory in these evil desires or in self-control. So today we're at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. But before we get to verse 16, I want to go over a couple of verses before it. We looked at this last week. So we're kind of going over a few verses that will help shed some light when we get to verse 16. So Paul writes in Colossians 2, 13, he forgave us all our sins. Now that is really, really good news. And you should just let that wash over you for a minute, right? All of you who came to church today and you lost your cool with your kids in the car ride over, in Christ, you're forgiven, right? If you're watching online right now and you just got up, right, and you pulled out your phone to watch this online, you haven't had a chance to sin a whole lot more today, but you need to remember this truth that in Christ, all your sins are forgiven. That's what we celebrate every single week, this amazing truth. And then he goes on and begins to flesh out this amazing truth that, that Jesus, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And I say, well, what does that mean? Well, if you grew up 
as a Jewish person studying what Paul calls the written code or the Mosaic law. This would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of the Old Testament that describe the law. There's about 613 of them, right? It's called the written code. And what Paul is saying is that written code, when Jesus died on the cross, that written code was also nailed to the cross. You say, well, did Paul come up with that all by himself? Well, no, because at one point Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So when Jesus said, it is finished, the law died with him, okay? So the written law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, as Paul says, is literally nailed to the cross. It's nailed to the cross. It's it's done with. Let me illustrate it in another way. We've shown you this illustration several times over the course of the last year, right? Here's, here's me in my orange jumpsuit against the law. Because when I read the written code, right, and I, I read those 10 commandments and the other 603 laws, it's against me. I'm condemned, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God or fall short of the written code. So when this lawyer reads the written law to me, I'm guilty. When he gives me all the thou shalt and all the shout nots, I'm in trouble. I deserve to be locked away, right? You could also call this guy an umpire who says, according to the law, you're out of here. And Paul says, when Jesus died on the cross, the written law was nailed to the cross. And it gets even better, if that's not good enough, it gets even better because he says, and it did something else too. The crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ accomplished something else, right? Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Now, if you're living in Colossae and you hear this language, here's what comes to your mind, and I think Paul was getting at this as well. If you were a Roman general and you went into a city and you attacked it, and you defeated your enemy, you would then come into the city, let's say it was the city of Rome, and you'd ride into the city on your white horse, and there would be a parade with people shouting out Hosanna or shouting out with their palm branches, and you would have prisoners of war in front of your horses in chains, and sometimes the leading general of the place that you just took over because it was a public spectacle that you have just triumphed over this neighboring city. And when Jesus died on the cross, this is awesome. He made a public spectacle. He put in chains sin and death and Satan. He put on parade Satan, sin, and death. He made a public spectacle of them because he just took them down. Whew, that's good. That's good. So if you have to leave early, right, or if you're watching online or your internet goes out, let me give you just a quick big idea of what the passage is all about that we're going to look at today. Paul's essentially saying this, this is my words, don't let anyone pry the coat off the cross and umpire you with it or judge you with it. There is a better way to conquer your evil desires. So with that in mind, Let's go to today's passage, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Paul writes this to the church at Colossae. Therefore, 
Do not let anyone judge you or don't let them umpire you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So again, if you grew up uh, as a Jewish person, you had a whole set of laws that you would follow. This is called the written code, right? For those of us who are visual learners, perhaps this will help. You were taught you had to avoid lobster and shellfish and pork and ham. You couldn't eat camel. You ever been tempted to eat camel? And you couldn't drink wine that was sacrificed to idols. You, You had to go to the Jewish temple three times a year to celebrate the Jewish feast. You could not do any work on the Sabbath. So when the, when the sun went down on Friday night till Saturday night, you couldn't do any work. And they would also celebrate the New Moon Festival, which was a monthly festival where they would offer a sacrifice to Yahweh. And what you've got happening in Colossae is a bunch of umpires walking around and saying, hey, 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 um, <clears throat> I saw you at Red Lobster last night and, and, and you weren't eating steak. You had to all-you-can-eat shrimp. Yeah, that's right. Are you aware of the written code? Or you had some people saying, hey, um, I didn't see you at the New Moon Festival last night. I mean, I heard you were at the bar drinking a blue moon, but I didn't see you at the New Moon Festival. Or um, I saw you drinking some of that wine that's been sacrificed to an idol. Or, hey, uh, I, took, I took off work last week, you know, took off two weeks worth of work took my family. We traveled 100 miles down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. It was an amazing religious experience. I mean, God was moving in our lives. Hey, I didn't see you there. Where were you? Right? So that you've got all these, these umpires, these, these people pointing their fingers, saying things like, hey, yesterday we were resting on the Sabbath, and I saw you out in your yard planting flowers and doing some yard work. Are you aware of the written code? Paul says, You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to rip the written code off the cross of Christ and umpire you with it. Here's another illustration that Paul gives. He says, these, the the written code or the Mosaic law, they're a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Here's what he's saying. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, right? Like, this is Jesus. He's coming. But he hasn't come yet. So this, this shadow is the written law. It's coming. Now, it would be weird if today you spoke to someone on the street and didn't look him in the eyes, but rather you looked at his shadow. He says, look, now that Christ has come, right? He has come here. If we go to the next one, he's come And we are called to follow him in his footsteps. We like to say around here that we're helping each other take our next steps towards Jesus. It doesn't make any sense to follow his shadow or the written code, kosher foods, religious festivals, new moon, or Sabbath day. Stop following the shadow because the reality, Christ has come. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus instead of worrying about the old written code. Here's the way one scholar would describe it. Why play in the shadow world when you have experienced the real thing? So when you hear the real thing, you know what you think about, right? You think about this, why would you drink Diet Sam's Cola when you could enjoy the real thing? Like this past week, I did this subconsciously, I did not even mean to do this because I've been studying the sermon, think about this. I went into Walmart to get some food for dinner and I went over and I bought myself a two liter of Coca-Cola 
And I don't normally buy Coca-Cola. I usually drink Dr. Pepper and root beer. I like some other things, but I got a Coca-Cola, and I brought it home, and I took a glass. I put some ice in it, and I poured that Coca-Cola in it, and it took an hour for the fizz to go down, and I drank it. Oh, it tasted so good. I think I'm going to drink more of the real thing. I actually have a friend. He sat right back there in the first service. He's one of my close friends, and um, he drinks a can of Coke every single evening, and he's one of the most in-shape persons I know. It's got to be because he's drinking Coca-Cola every night. (laughs) He's getting the real thing in him, right? So like if you eat Chick-fil-A and drink Coke, you'll become a stronger Christian, right? So why, again, he says, why, why would you play in the shadow world? Why would you get so obsessed with the written law when the real thing has come? Come on now. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Now, this word disqualify is a fascinating Greek word. It's the word kata brabuo. It's where we get the word boo. Like when you boo an umpire, it's from the Greek word kata brabuo. No, I just made that up, but it kind of works, doesn't it? Like there are people around here who are trying to umpire you and point their fingers because you're not doing the written code. So don't, don't let them disqualify you. You should boo them. Now, don't do that out loud. That's not good. But, but maybe inside, you know, maybe inside. So he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Now, you know what asceticism is, right? Like an extreme ascetic would be a monk or a nun, right? Someone that wears the same clothes every day. Some of you are like, I got a seventh grade boy who must be a monk then because he wears the same thing every day. Now, asceticism, it's, it's literally, it's like modesty or lowliness of mind. Now, modesty and lowliness of mind are good things. But some people, they get like real modest, like some ladies who just wear skirts, you know, some guys who might just wear the same outfit every day, and they just live a real simple life, have a real simple home, simple vehicles. Now, Paul's saying, that's Okay. I mean, some of you might need to be more modest or might, have, might need to have a simpler life. But these people, they're really, really simple. And the problem isn't their simplicity. The problem is they're insisting that everybody else be like them. And they're umpires. They're judging. He says, don't be like that. He gives some other examples of some umpires or some, some judgmental people. They're, they're, uh, they're worshiping angels. And they're going on and on about these visions, and they're puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. You ever talk to somebody, you know, if you've been around the church for a while, if you've met Christians, not this church, of course, but other, other churches where people are like, they'll just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about their religious experience, you know? They'll be like, yeah, I had this religious experience, and they're seeing visions, and they got goosebumps, and they got all these ecstatic experiences, and they just go on and on and on. And you're thinking to yourself, when are you going to stop? And I kind of feel like you're judging me right now because I haven't had the same religious experience. Now, let me be clear. Sometimes we can be too sensitive thinking people are always judging us. Don't be that sensitive. You're worried about what people are thinking about you when the reality is people don't think about you that much. Okay? But there are people in Colossae and maybe some people nowadays They just go on and on about these sort of religious, ecstatic experiences, and it puffs up their head, and it's just unreasonable. It's just kind of weird. 
Paul says, be careful. Be careful. And this is a dangerous place to be. Paul describes it as these kinds of umpires, they've lost connection with the head. They're all about the written code and all about these ecstatic goosebump experiences. And it's kind of like they're walking around, you know, dressed up all nice and, and they got it all together on the outside and they look good, but they're walking around headless. And it's like, I mean, you look good, but you don't have a head. That's, that's strange. Why don't you have a head? Right? It's like looking at the headless horseman. And nobody says, oh, I want to be like the headless horseman who's got a nice big strong horse and a sword and big muscles. No, we look at the headless horseman and we're like, where's your head? Like, that's, that's weird to walk around without a head. And Paul says, there's people walking around that are so focused on the written law and they're focused on religion and do this and do that. And they don't even realize that they've lost their head. They're walking around with no head. So again, here's our question. How do I conquer my evil desires? How do I conquer them? And Paul says, well, there's a whole group of religious zealots who have a solution. And the solution goes like this, right? You got to avoid certain foods and, certain foods and drinks. And you got to make sure you attend all the religious festivals and you got to make sure you got a modest lifestyle and you got to make sure you get these religious experiences where you get goosebumps and it's all amazing and this sort of thing. Now, let me be clear. These can all be good things, right? Some of you need to avoid certain foods and drinks. For some of you, you need to come to church more often. Some of you, you should be a little more modest. Others of you, maybe, maybe you do need to get in a quiet place with God and experience his presence. But the problem that Paul's addressing here is they get so focused on the thing. They get so focused on their behavior. They get so experienced on their emotions and the, the experience and impressing other people. It's religion. It's, it's legalism. It may work for a time, but after a while, it's just going to wear you out. And if you try to raise your kids with legalism, it may work while they're in the house, but when they get out, they may leave the faith altogether. So Paul says, these folks, they've lost connection with the head. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and its tendons or sinews grows as God causes it to grow. He's the one that does the growth. He is our source. He is the head of the body of Christ the church. So the question, how do you conquer your evil desires, is you remain connected to the head. Right? It's like Jesus in John 15 said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who remains in me will bear much fruit. He said, well, what is fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. When you remain connected to the head, you produce fruit. So be careful of the umpires. Be careful of those who want you to conform to a certain mold, and they're so obsessed with the thing rather than the person and the work of 
Christ. So that's one group that Paul addresses here in Colossians. The other group that he's going to address is, if you go to the other side of the pendulum, it's those who are worldly. They buy into a worldly philosophy, right? Here's how he describes it. Since you died with Christ, to the basic principles of this world, right, uh, a term would be secular. Secular is, you know, without God, principles of this world. Why as though you still belonged to it, do you submit to its rules? So here are some of the rules of secular world. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self imposed worship. This is a big term. We're going to come back to this in a moment. Self-imposed worship. It's all about me and my comfort in my life. Their false humility, right? Trying to appear humble, more humble than you actually are. And their harsh treatment of the body, this ascetic lifestyle. And here's what Paul says to close out this section. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The New Living Translation translates it like this. These rules may seem wise because they require a strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. So here's the, the groups that Paul's addressing in this section. The first group would be the religious moralist or the legalist who says, do and avoid, and I'll give you a Bible verse to support it. Now, let me be clear on something. Let me be clear. Sometimes legalism can be a good thing, right? Like, my opinion is sometimes as parents, we need to be legalistic when it comes to our, our, our children's device and cell phone usage, right? Because I don't, I don't want to just give my kid a loaded gun at the age of 10 because he might kill himself or somebody else with it. So I might have to be legalistic, and apparently I'm the most legalistic person on planet Earth when it comes to this, <laughs> right? But it's like the children of Israel when they were first getting started. God gave them all kinds of rules and regulations because he said, you're a brand new nation. You're my child. I need to give you some rules so that you don't kill yourself and kill other people. So sometimes legalism can be helpful, but the goal in parenting, and we'll talk more about this as we get to our family series after Easter, but the goal in parenting is really so that when they leave the house, when they're like 25 years old, they can get a cell phone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Someone just looked at me with like a real scared look right there. But the goal... The goal is that when they get out of the house, they don't need your rules anymore. But when they're little and they're impressionable and they're trying to figure out life, sometimes we need to step in and be a, legal, a little bit legalistic. But here's the thing, you know, this is a parent. If all you do is legalism and do this and don't do that, but there's no relationship, they may be good in the house, but when they get out of the house, you might lose them, right? So I like legalism a little bit, but that's not the goal. And Paul says, there's too many legalistic people. Their goal is the thing. Their goal is the rule. Their goal is trying to impress other people. And then again, the, the second group of people he's addressing here would be the self-help experts. Do and avoid 
and I'll give you some scientific data. Now, I, I really like self-help experts. I listen to a bunch of them. I listen to podcasts like the Huberman Lab. Some of you like Dave Ramsey. Some of you like Jordan Peterson. These are some really smart people who will give you scientific data to say this is why you should do a cold plunge <laughs> or this is why you should eat certain foods and avoid certain foods and this is why pornography is killing your brain. And you know, when I hear these self-help experts, oftentimes I think to myself, oh, Jesus and Paul were right. Sexual purity is actually good for your neurology, right? So I like listening to the self-help experts. They can be helpful, but Paul says... I'm going to tell you what's going to be really helpful. I'm going to tell you what this is all about. I want you to stay connected to the head. Don't be legalistic. Find the truth in, in here because all truth is God's truth. But at the end of the day, if you want to conquer your evil desires, stay connected to the head. Remain attached to the vine. I love what Garland, one scholar, writes. He says, if we set as our goal self-discipline, that's a good thing, self-discipline. Self-awareness, that's a good thing. Self-fulfillment, I got to be all that I can be. Self-esteem, I got to have a good positive self-esteem. Self-actualization or self-help. We usually wind up with a worship of the self. Again, I like the self-help material, but you got to be careful because at the end of the day, you can be so into self-help that it becomes all about yourself. What I like to say is if we set as our goal to remain connected to Christ throughout the day, we often wind up with more selfless and more peace and more love and more kindness. So if you're in a small group this week, number five, the questions that I gave you is how do you remain connected to Christ throughout your day? There's some smart people around your circle that can give you some ideas of how to remain connected. If you go to lunch after the service, I, I just want to challenge you to ask this question, how do we remain connected? Because if you don't remain connected to Christ, you are going to tend towards legalism or you're going to tend towards moralism or self-help, and we need to continually ground ourselves with this truth that life is all about being connected. To the head. One of the things I like to say is here's how I try to stay connected through Christ, with Christ, with the head throughout the day. And it's, it's two words, okay? So if you want to memorize a Bible verse, this is the, a great verse to memorize. Easy to memorize. Pray continually, right? I'm driving to work. I'm praying. Five, 10 second prayer. I'm reminding myself I got to be connected to the vine. I don't want to walk around headless. I'm about to go into a meeting. God, help me. Give me strength. Help me to be selfless. I'm cooking dinner. I'm hanging out with my kids. God, I love you. I thank you for my kids. I thank you for this house. I thank you for this church. I'm so grateful. I'm praying continuously, just a few seconds here and there. It reminds me to stay connected to the head, to receive my nourishment from the vine. Because when we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. I got one last thing to say. This might be a sermon separate sermon, but be more like a coach and less like an umpire. When my kid struggles with baseball, I don't call up an umpire. I don't call up an umpire and say, hey, can you come out and call balls and strikes? I mean, we got some umpires 
some referees and a coach I'm look, in, in the church. I'm looking at one of them right here. And he has that balance of being an umpire and also mentoring people. I love this guy right here. But most of us, most of us, when we say, I'll, most of us don't grow up saying, I want to be an umpire. Most of us become an umpire, or at least I was. I became an umpire so I could make some extra money. But there's a whole bunch of people in this church who are coaching, and you're coaching for free. And you're doing it because you want to inspire and you want to help people with their technique. You want to help them get better. You want to love on them. You want to encourage them. You want to put wind in their sails. Be more like a coach and less like an umpire. One of the best coaches I ever had was a guy who wasn't afraid to grab my face mask and yell in my face, but I knew that he loved me, and I knew that he cared about me, and he would show me some technique, and on the side, he would ask me how I'm doing. He was involved in my life, and that makes all the difference. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now, and uh, we're going to close with a song. This is a song that, if you grew up in church, you've probably sung this song several times. Um, but I want to share with you the lyrics to it. And I had to look up what some of these lyrics meant. <clears throat> it goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly trust in Jesus' name. Now, I had to look up what this line right here meant, and I think what it means is that I'm not trusting in my frame of mind, because there's some days where I'm in a good mood, and there's some moments where I'm in a bad mood. It seems like I am up and down. I'm in a good frame of mind one moment. Some of you, this, some of you, maybe you're here right now or you're watching online, you haven't been able to pay attention to anything I've said today, because your mind is somewhere else. You know what? Your faith is not dependent on where your mind is. Your faith is not dependent on having goosebumps or being in a good frame of mind. Your faith is dependent on the blood-soaked cross of Jesus Christ who had the written law nailed through his hands so that you could have new life. It's not based on my frame of mind. It's not based on good days or bad days. It's based in the cross of Christ. So I'll wholly trust in Jesus' name. And then he says, my hope we're in every high and stormy gale. We don't use this word gale anymore. I mean, how many of you looked out the window yesterday when the rain was coming down hard and said, oh, it's a stormy gale out there, right? Nobody said that. But it, it simply means whenever the storm is high and whenever the rains come hard and if the sun is shining or it's dark or there's sleet out there, no matter what the weather's like, no matter what my mood is like, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor is in Christ alone and not in my emotions. This comes from Hebrews chapter 6, where the author says, For we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Now you say, what on earth does this mean? If you look at the Jewish temple, this building right here was split up into two rooms. There was the sanctuary and then there was the inner sanctuary or the most holy place where the high priest would enter once a year on the day of atonement to offer the sacrifice. This was the sacred place where the presence of God was made manifest. And when Jesus died on the cross, this curtain that separated 
The sanctuary from the inner sanctuary was torn when he said it is finished and the written code was nailed to the cross. He gave you access to the presence of God. And my anchor is firm in that inner sanctuary because of what Christ did for me. So stop trying to rip off the written code from what's already been nailed to the cross. Stop trying to be so religious. Stop working so hard and rest in this amazing, amazing truth that the blood-soaked cross of Jesus Christ, that when he said it is finished, it really was finished and that you really are forgiven and stay attached to the head. Stay attached to that God, that God-man Jesus Christ who laid it all down for you. Stay attached to the vine, and he'll give you the strength to overcome and to conquer. You know, sometimes we say things like this. We say, what's well, your fault? It's my fault. I'm messed up. You know, in Christ. You stand faultless before the throne. You stand forgiven, righteous, and clean, and whole. That's the best news you'll ever hear. And it's my hope that when you walk out of here today, no matter what you look like, no matter how you're dressed or what you ate or what you drank, that in Christ, you're forgiven. You're made new. You're given the Holy Spirit of God. No matter what your frame is like, no matter whether you've had a good day or a bad day, So let's elevate Christ in all that we do. Let's elevate him in everything that we do and say because he is worthy. Let's remain attached to the head because walking around headless is just weird. Pray with me and then we will sing this song together. God, we love you and we thank you that our anchor is in you. Not in our works, not in our mood, not in any ability to be a good person, but it is in the blood-soaked cross of Jesus Christ. I thank you that, that I am faultless before the throne. What an awesome truth. Would you help us to leave this place a little bit lighter and a little bit freer and a little bit more well-connected to the head? And we pray this in the glorious, majestic, amazing name of the God of the universe who is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.